0: Thank you to Sally for leading this morning, uh, to Alice for her words of welcome again. Uh, It's lovely to be with you in Windsor. I had a very encouraging week this week. Uh, We're always tempted, I guess, to uh, think about the downside of life and the things that have discouraged us. And uh, as I was driving down this morning, I thought maybe I should tell you about one or two of the things uh, initially today that really encouraged me. The first was on Monday, and that was bank holiday. And uh, we took a drive into Donegal, uh, part of the world with which I thought I was very familiar. But we went on to Inishon Peninsula there, uh, which is actually the most northerly part of Ireland, and it's in the south. Our American friends need to think about that. Just have a look at the map. But the most northerly part of Ireland is in the the south of Ireland. And we went to Inishon, and I discovered parts of Inishon that I didn't know existed, the most glorious scenery I think I've ever seen anywhere, and the weather was kind. Imagine that. And uh, so that really encouraged me. Just thinking about the God of creation and all that He has made, that was terrific. The other thing, and you'd expect this from a preacher, uh, was two sermons that I heard during the week. The first at Keswick in Port Stewart on a Friday morning, Steve Brady preached on the new heaven and the new earth. And uh, I'm sure you can get this on the Internet. You probably can either download it or order the CD. I commend it to you. It was absolutely spellbinding. And uh, I came away most encouraged, learned things about the new heaven and the new earth that I certainly didn't know. And the other one was a sermon last evening at New Horizon, which is a a convention again on the north coast uh, in the Triangle area called Rain. And, uh, John Lennox, Dr. John Lennox from Oxford, who has recently engaged uh, in debate with Richard Dawkins on the whole issue uh, of atheism and the defense of Christianity, and it was an apologetic sermon uh, on the defense of Christianity, and it was terrific, and I'm absolutely certain that you can get that one uh, on CD, and again, I recommend that to you. So I come here on a bit of a spiritual high this morning, and hopefully... That will be uh, communicated through uh, our message from God's word today. And we're turning to the book of Genesis. And uh, we've been doing this on these Sunday mornings in July, uh, thinking about some of the ethics of the first two or three chapters of the book of Genesis. In other words, what we think about ourselves, what we think about God, and how we are to behave. And uh, we come today to think about the theme of good and evil. In Genesis, and our reading is from chapter 2, verse 8. Genesis chapter 2, verse 8. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Ashur. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. Then down to chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and the flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Amen. I want you to picture the scene as tomorrow you're walking along in front of the city hall in Belfast, and there sitting on the pavement at the railings is a man begging. As you approach, you can see that the man's clothes are ragged. His face and hands have not been washed for some time. Uh, His hair is long and unkempt. His eyes are sunken and haunted. Now, for everyone who lives in London or Dublin or uh, some of the other very large cities in the world, then this is not an uncommon sight. But imagine as you approach this individual, get a little bit closer to him, your shock and surprise when you realise that this man used to be a prominent businessman, a member of society, who was right at the higher echelons, and in fact, just a few years ago, he had been elected a Belfast City Councillor. But now things have changed. Now he is destitute. Now his situation has become altogether hopeless. Now let me say immediately that that story is fictional, uh, just in case you are trying to identify the person in question. But it is something like that that is being described here in Genesis chapter 3, except to say that this is an even more tragic situation that is being depicted. You will recall that uh, a couple of weeks ago we discovered in chapter 1 of Genesis that man is the pinnacle of God's creation. He has been made in God's image. He is given uh, the responsibility to rule over God's creation as his steward and representative. In chapter 2 we discover, uh, and saw this last Sunday morning, that man is given work to perform and rest to enjoy. And yet here in chapter 3, everything has changed. Now man has been, as we read this morning, banished from the garden. The exalted person that we encountered of chapters 1 and 2 has become a despicable creature, banished from the garden, walking out, well, east of Eden. And today, we are still banished. The world is no paradise I'm sure you don't need me to tell you that. That little part of the mountainside there in Inishon was a little slice of heaven, we thought. But you're quickly brought back to earth with a bump when you begin to live and move among people as you buy your daily newspaper, as you you listen to the radio, even in the car this morning, listening to some of the things that have happened overnight around the world. And so Louis Armstrong's song, What a Wonderful World, which celebrates humanity, nature, and love, is actually very far removed from the reality of our situation. Because all around the world today, there is anger and hatred and killing. For sure, there are shades of Genesis 1 and 2 in the world, especially on a beautiful summer's morning. But all too often, this is somehow obscured by the sheer wickedness and pain in the world in which we live. And we're bound to ask a question. The question is very simply this. What has gone wrong with our world? And the answer is found in Genesis chapter 3. Here is a section of God's word which provides the answer. Here is a passage, in fact, that could not be more relevant. It says to us today, this is what has gone wrong. I want to suggest that it teaches us some very important lessons uh, about ourselves and explains the reason why we are the way we are. Now, as we begin this morning, I I want to say a word about how we are to understand this story in chapters two and three. How do we understand the story of the fall as it is described here? It has often been stated by theologians and certainly by critics of the Bible that this story is a fairy story, that it is an example of something called myth. That doesn't necessarily mean in theological parlance that it's untrue, but it's simply a way of explaining the world as we encounter it, the world as we experience it, in an ancient way of description. And uh, that's a very common view of the book of Genesis as a whole, in fact, and certainly of this part, uh, uh, the early part in chapters 2 and 3. But I want to say to you that the New Testament assumes that this story is history. It is every bit as factual, according to the New Testament, as the cross and resurrection and uh, I guess that there is nobody here who would want to place a question mark over the historical reality of the cross, or indeed of the resurrection. And uh, the New Testament does not permit us to do uh, something different in relation to this part of Genesis. So, for example, Luke chapter 3, verse 22, which I've given you here on the screen, is a genealogy. It's a family tree, and it's tracing the genealogy of Christ right back to Adam, and identifies him as a historical person. Romans 5, 18 and 19, which are also here, does exactly the same thing. It describes how sin entered the world by one man and so death by sin. In other words, the New Testament is saying to us by implication that this is historical reality that is being described. Now, I haven't time to go into any more detail on that this morning, but I simply want to lay it down as a marker at this stage, so that we'll understand this passage not as a fairy story, not as myth, that ancient category, but something that is rooted in real space-time history. Now, there are three things that I want to identify in the chapter this morning, and in each of these headings we're going to use the word man, M-A-N. It will be used in the generic sense to include both male and female. And the first is this, the place man lived. Chapter 2, verse 8 commences a description of the Garden of Eden. Now, I couldn't find a picture of the Garden of Eden, and so you'll appreciate it. We've got some mountains here on the screen. I want you to, in your mind's eye, uh, picture the Garden of Eden lying somewhere on the other side of those mountains. It is obviously, from the story, a locality rather than a symbol. Because the passage says that God planted a garden in the east, in Eden. And verse 10 forwards indicate the the river that watered the garden. It's being described. The actual location is not discoverable. Uh, But it seems to have been a fairly compact area above the Persian Gulf, through which the rivers Tigris and Euphrates flowed. The other two rivers that are mentioned, or tributaries that are mentioned, the Pishon and the Gihon, are not known. Uh, It is conceivable, I suppose, that they dried up in antiquity, uh, but we are not able to identify them. The name Eden itself, I wonder, do you know what that means? The name Eden, and uh, uh, it's an interesting thing. If you you visit cities in Europe, I don't know what it's like in in the uh, United States of America, but in Europe there are quite a number of hotels that are called the Hotel Eden. Have you noticed this? And uh, I remember staying in one in Amsterdam on one occasion and I have to tell you, it doesn't quite fit my idea of what paradise should be like. But this name Eden means delight. It means delight. The imagery that is conjured up in our minds is of a, a beautiful landscaped parkland area. Now, it's not the idea of a, a vegetable plot where you've got rows of veg and perhaps a rows of strawberries and fruit and all that kind of thing. It, it is something like... I suppose, Kew Gardens in London, if you've been there, uh, or some other superbly well-kept National Trust property uh, here in Northern Ireland. Though even that would fail to do justice uh, to the beauty that is conjured up in our minds by the description of this place. It is more than simply, of course, a a piece of valuable farmland or forest, because it is the place where man lived. And it is the place where God met with man to have fellowship with him. Now, as I say that, I'm aware that there are some writers who uh, 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 correlate this with the tabernacle or the temple. In other words, it has the connotation, they say, of a, a place of spiritual fellowship, a, a special place. And so they say it's a pre-runner or a, 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 it prefigures the tabernacle, or the temple. Now, I think that's a bit of an overstatement, but it's certainly true to say that the key to this garden, the Garden of Eden, is the presence of God, and that man living in the garden experienced the grace of God in spiritual fellowship and in material provision. Now, you will notice in our passage this morning that two specific trees are mentioned as holding a prominent place in the garden. We have the tree of life, which is referred to here in Genesis, and then also, interestingly, in Proverbs, and again, specifically at the end of God's book of the Bible, in Revelation. And then also the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that is mentioned only here in Genesis chapter 2. Now, these trees are, without doubt, mysterious. Various interpretations have been placed upon them. And I want to say a word about each of them in turn. First, the tree of life. Perhaps the most acceptable understanding of the significance of this tree is that it bore fruit which when eaten extended life. Uh, Walton in his commentary takes the view that it is extension of life that is being referred to here. Uh, He looks at the references in Proverbs. Uh, If you have a a lexicon or something like that, have a look at those references in Proverbs. And Walton says, when you look at Genesis and Proverbs together, uh, then you get this idea of the extension of life. And so he says, the Israelites, uh, as they read this for the first time, would have associated this tree as being a tree of youth rather than a tree of immortality. Uh, I have a slight difficulty with that, and that is that Genesis 3, verse 22 indicates that access to the tree meant they would live forever. Uh, And so it seems that there's something uh, something associated with immortality in the fruit of this tree. Now, if we accept that interpretation, it means that the human body had a natural tendency to deterioration, and God provided the tree of life to make death unnecessary. This tree was now forbidden in the fall to Adam and Eve when they were banished from the garden. In their ejection from the garden, they were simultaneously denied access to the tree of life. And so death became an unavoidable reality. Now, it doesn't mean that uh, when uh, when they ate, they died right away. That's obvious from the passage. Uh, But rather that death became unavoidable in the long run. So the tree of life. And I appreciate that there are questions that immediately are in your mind and also in mine that I am unable to answer about that. The second is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's very likely that the phrase good and evil here indicates not merely knowledge of two isolated things, things that are good and, on the other hand, things that are evil, but rather a whole range of knowledge. Atkinson in his commentary says it is the knowledge of everything. That is being described here. The sort of knowledge that God has. And in particular divine wisdom. But the man is not God you see. He is made in the image of God. But he is not God. And he has not the right to usurp God. And try to take his place. So he is forbidden to eat of this tree. God has placed a boundary on the freedom and the place of man. In relation to uh, his, in, in his relationship with God. Now, these trees, I suggest to you today, were real and also symbolic. Their fruit, it seems, contained real and significant properties, the eating of which brought consequences for good and for ill. They symbolized at the same time the grace of God and provision. And indicated the controls that God has set in place in his world. Now you will also want to remember that in Revelation chapter 22 verse 2, the tree of life appears again. And also in Revelation 22 verse 14. The only thing that frustrated me slightly on Friday morning, because I knew I was dealing with this, was that Steve Brady didn't actually touch on the tree of life or the tree of knowledge and good and the evil. And I'd like him to have done that. But chapter 22, verse 14 indicates that the leaves of the tree of life and revelation in the, in the new city, the city of Jerusalem, are for the healing of the nations. But here in Genesis, the boundaries for man's life and freedom are clearly set. And specific commands have been given to him. He is to eat of all the trees in the Garden of Eden, except one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So here is the place man lived. And the image that we are to conjure up in our mind is a place of spiritual fellowship and a place of material provision. Then I want us secondly to notice in our study this morning the temptation man faced. How striking it is that in the midst of all the delight and perfection of the garden, evil is to be found. Here is God prepared to take a risk with human freedom. And the evil comes in the physical form of a snake and through it the malevolent spiritual form of Satan. Now let me say a word about snakes. They are not many people's favorite animal. I wonder, no, I better not, because there's somebody here I will highly offend by asking you to put your hand up if a snake is your favorite animal. I know that some people keep snakes as pets. Uh, my wife is a physiotherapist, and uh, she works a little bit in the community, and uh, there's one particular person she visits, and this person has a snake in a cage as a pet. She's terrified about going into this property. It certainly is a test of her commitment uh, to her occupation, And I don't know about you, but I find snakes creepy. They scare me. And so if there's a snake coming along here, I want to be at the back of the building very, very quickly. Now, our American friends are probably smiling at that. You're quite used to having snakes around. Perhaps that depends where you live in America, of course. We used to have them, we're told, but the myth is that St. Patrick chased them all away from Ireland. I'm so glad about that. In ancient times, snakes were also feared. And they were indeed worshipped in pagan religions. Genesis says that the snake was crafty. Well, at least that's how the NIV uh, translates the word. The word here can also mean shrewd or cunning more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. You watch any wildlife program, and you'll soon realize that. And here this natural cunning of the reptile is employed by a higher and malevolent force. Now, the snake has most often been taken as a symbol of the devil. And you will realize that Revelation, again at the end of the Bible, speaks of the devil as that ancient serpent. Revelation 20, verse 2. But right away, as we read this story, we're meant to understand that there's something very significant happening here. Let's get out of our minds any notion that this is a bit like Aesop's fables. You know, where the the animals talk. Ordinarily, here's news for us today, ordinarily, animals do not speak. Did you know that? Yes. Uh, And so Eve should have been alerted right away that something was going on. There was something strange happening. She should have been placed on her guard. Uh, it's obvious that elsewhere in the Bible, animals are used very occasionally by God to communicate what he wants them to say. We think of Balaam's donkey. You can read that story in Numbers chapter 22. But this is an unusual occurrence. We should not assume that because it's unusual, it is therefore a myth. This is Genesis history. The snake was used by Satan, the devil, that ancient enemy of God and his cause to put temptation in the way of the woman and through her to her husband. Now, I know that it's true, and you may quickly want to point this out to me, that there is no direct mention of the devil or Satan in this passage. But that does not mean that his activity is not to be discovered here. He is very clearly at work. A number of commentators make this point, and I think the best commentary that I'd want to refer you to this morning is 2 Corinthians 11, verse 3. I said on a previous occasion that the best commentary we have on our Old Testament is actually the New Testament. And the Apostle Paul makes it clear as he addresses this tragic event of the fall in Second Corinthians that it is placed in the context of the activity of Satan. Now Adam and Eve had been instructed not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And here we find them with all the freedom that God gave them, breaking that command, disobeying the one prohibition of God's word. And perhaps, as we've read this story in the past, and maybe as we've read it this morning, we're scratching our heads and saying, but wait a minute, what's the problem? What's the issue? What's so bad about eating a piece of fruit? But you see, it wasn't just that they they ate a piece of fruit. The essence of their disobedience or their sin or transgression was that they had a desire to become like God. That's what verse 5 says. This was the temptation that Satan put before them. And it's not, you see, simply that they wanted to know the difference between good and evil, because they already knew that. Why do I say that? Well, because God had stated the prohibition in chapter 2, verse 17, and they had to understand the difference if they were to obey it. They knew what it was to obey God and they knew what it would be to disobey God and presumably something of the consequence of that. So it's not the knowing the difference between right and wrong that is the issue here. It is actually deciding what is right and wrong. In other words, they wanted to take the crown from God's head, figuratively speaking, and place it on their own. They wanted to usurp God's authority. They wanted to say to to God, no, we will decide how to run our lives, not you. Rico Tice of Christianity Explored fame says that Frank Sinatra's song, I Did It My Way, could be called the sinner's anthem. I'm sure that's right. I made a few mistakes along the way, but I did it my way. Wasn't that what lay right at the heart of the very entrance of sin into the world? I've made a few mistakes along the way. We'd all say that today. Nobody here today would say, I've got a blank sheet. I've got a clear exit. No, we wouldn't say that. We'd say, yeah, I've made a few mistakes along the way, but I've done it my way. I've done the best I can. And that lay right at the heart of the entrance of sin into the world. Now, we need to appreciate this morning that this is not merely a piece of ancient history that has no real relevance to us because we were there. Can you believe it? You and I were there at the entrance of sin into the world. The Apostle Paul says that. Adam was our representative in the garden. And we would have done exactly what Adam and Eve did. Now, we have a higher view of ourselves than that. We like to think, well, how, how stupid they were. Here's God, He makes it clear. And look at them. They, they just blatantly turn around and do the opposite. We'd have done something different. We're more noble than that. No. We'd have done exactly the same. We would not have told the serpent to take a hike. We would have sinned, not just like Adam, but we sinned in Adam. That's what the Apostle Paul says in the New Testament. In other words, Adam was and is our representative head. That's how sin is communicated down through the generations. It's not just that we sin in imitation of Adam and Eve, but we sinned in them, in the garden. So here is Satan using the snake in chapter 3, and you'll notice what he does. He undermines God's law, and he does it in three ways. First of all, he argues that God's law is not clear. Has God really said? That still happens today. The devil comes to us and he says, are you sure? Are you sure that the Bible is God's word? doesn't seem very clear. And the insinuation is that it is quite legitimate to doubt what God has said. Uh, and in this area, the devil has been busy for centuries. This is the first recorded example of it. But he's been doing this for all of his existence, placing that little doubt into people's minds. Remember how he addressed the Lord Jesus, recorded in Matthew chapter 4. He tempted the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, to doubt the provision of God for him in the wilderness experience. And he's been doing exactly the same with God's people ever since. So that's the first undermining of God's law. God's law is not clear. Secondly, God's law is not true. You will not surely die, said the devil. Verse 4. Satan casts doubt on God's trustworthiness and then also on the truth of his word. This is a, a, a direct denial of the truth of the judgment of God on sin. You will not surely die. In other words, there's no judgment. That's a very popular refrain today. You hear it all the time. People recognise, I think, the reality of evil in the world. I, I don't think there's any question about that. Because people, whether they are prepared to admit it or not, even they are the most post-modern of post-moderns, they'll say that's a bad thing to do, that's a good thing to do. Then you begin to unravel. Why they take that view and you discover they're not really postmodern at all. Because they've got absolutes just like everybody else. But when you get to the point of saying that sin and evil that you've just described brings in its wake judgment, well, then they balk at that. Uh, And this is a big issue today. People denying the reality of judgment. And I want to say this morning, you and I should not be taken in by this. It's a very serious thing. It means that every so-called Christian leader who denies the reality of hell and judgment is speaking the words of the devil. Because the devil first said this. And you and I must not be taken in by those platitudes. What God says is true, and uh, whatever the facts and the details of it are, no matter how unpalatable it may appear to us, Judgment is a reality. So God's law is clear. God's law is true. And then thirdly, the devil tried to undermine this law by saying that God's law was unreasonable. Verse 5 again. God knows that when you eat the fruit, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Still the same today. People say to us, God's not fair. God's a spoiled sport. He's out to restrict your fun and ruin your life. But that's a lie. Because it's only in a living relationship with Him through Jesus Christ that we can really, truly enjoy life. And God is not unreasonable because He says in one place in Isaiah, Come now, let us reason together. God is the most reasonable being in the universe. Uh, And dare anybody cast this in God's face, that he is unreasonable and a spoiled sport out to ruin our lives. Now, in one sense, this historical event happened and has not been repeated. the, The fall, I mean. But in another sense, it is repeated in people's lives, including ours here today, every day of our lives. So many people push God to the sidelines of their lives and sit on his throne themselves. I'm reminded of the story uh, that John Chapman told him one occasion. He was an evangelist in the Diocese of Sydney until he retired. And he was visiting uh, the House of Lords on one occasion with a friend uh, in London. And uh, the friend was showing him around. And uh, this chap was, I think, a peer himself. He was showing John Chapman around and they came looked around all of the seats and the various special seats and then they came to the most special seat of all which is the throne where Her Majesty sits at the opening of Parliament. And uh, he described this to John Chapman. And Chapman said, if you've heard John Chapman, you'll know he's an extremely humorous individual. And Chapman said, tongue in cheek, I tell you what, he said, I've got a camera, you take the camera and nip up onto the throne, you take a photograph, it'll be a bash back in Sydney. And uh He said the color drained from his friend's face. And he said, you can't be serious. He said, nobody is allowed to sit on that throne. And Chapman said, yeah, it's interesting, isn't it, he said, that so many people around the world today are pushing God from his throne and sitting right in his place. And I was always very taken by that because I have to say to you today that I do exactly that. And if you're honest today before God, you'll have to say, yes, I've been doing that as well. There are areas of my life that I will not allow God to have control of, and I will sit on his throne to the best of my ability. So here are people pushing God to the side, rebelling against him. This is what lies at the heart of the problem of the human race. This is why we need to think about a subject like ethics in Genesis, who we are, who God is what we're to think about ourselves and him, how we are to behave. Why should we even be considering this topic on these Sunday mornings? Because of what happened in the Garden of Eden at the fall. Man is inclined to believe, like Hamlet, that there is nothing either good or bad, but thinking makes it so. Now, I know that it is true that there are borderline areas. As I, I've got a little bit older in life and I'm approaching a, a significant birthday, i leave you to guess which. Uh, please don't say afterwards in case you get it wrong. But as I get older, I, I've discovered that there are more gray areas in life than I once thought. Anybody share that view? Life is not as black and white as I used to think. Now, there are certain theological absolutes that I stand four square on. Uh, and I'm very happy in the context of the Irish Baptist College to say to the guys, look, these are things that are absolutely clear, but they're also grey areas. We don't know everything. And I know that in ethical matters, the issue for example of medical ethics, there are grey areas, conflicting claims, decisions can be complicated. But at the same time, let me say this, we don't want to go down that road so far that we end up in a complete cloud where we don't know what way to turn or where to look for guidance. There are some things that we call good and some things that we call evil. And it's not just your good and evil as opposed to my good and evil. You make your decision, I'll make mine, and everybody's happy. But there are certain things that God has decreed and written on our hearts and minds. He did this in creation, and so the tree in the center of the garden stood as a constant reminder to Adam and Eve that they could enjoy all that God had freely given, but they could not overstep the mark, the divine boundary that God had set in place. To do so would diminish rather than enhance human freedom and well-being. Now, that highlights one of the real paradoxes of human life today. Freedom without bounds, is actually slavery. I don't know whether that has ever really impacted upon us. Freedom without boundaries, without limitations, is actually a form of slavery. David Atkinson gives the superb example of a goldfish. We've never been very successful. Somebody tell me afterwards how you keep goldfish alive for longer than a fortnight. Different subject. Take the example of a goldfish. If we liberate the fish from its bowl, It will not survive long in its new freedom. Its freedom to be a goldfish depends on respect for the appropriate context of its life. It's exactly the same with human beings. Some people might interpret this as a restrictive command in Genesis. You shall eat of all the trees except one. But in fact, it was a liberating command. It is the only basis on which personal freedom can be found. A relationship of spiritual fellowship with God as our creator and as our savior. Then quickly and thirdly, the guilt man felt. The guilt man felt. The consequences of the entrance of sin are truly awful. Next week we're going to be thinking about this in a little bit more detail. We're going to come into chapter 4 and have a look at Cain and Abel and what happened there. But the initial impact of the tragedy comes in verse 9. And I don't think we should miss this, and sometimes we do. Verse 9, God calls to the man, where are you? What a tragic picture. What's happening here? The man and woman are hiding from their creator. The one who made them, the one who gave them everything, and they're hiding. Now, this gives the lie to the notion. That man has been seeking after God since the beginning of time. It's a nonsense. Don't believe it. You you hear people saying this. Uh, I'm on a search. Some people go off, you know, after university or maybe before university. And they're looking for themselves. And I I remember talking to a guy um, in Belfast when I was ministering across the city. Uh, And I met a guy one day in a coffee shop. We were chatting. uh, And he said, you know, I've spent the past five years looking for God. And he said, I've never come to a satisfactory conclusion. And my answer to that is, well, if you're looking for God, you'll find him because he's not hiding. Where did we ever get this idea that it's God who's hiding? It's we who are hiding. We're running away from God. Ever since the fall, in our sin and guilt, we've been hiding. God has shown himself. He has shown himself absolutely clearly in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ, who came into the world to live among us and to be with us and to show us what authentic, ethical humanity really is and to go to the cross and with outstretched arms die for us so that our sins might be forgiven and the relationship that was broken in the fall might be gloriously restored. Don't buy into this idea that God is somehow obscure. He's way out there and we can't find Him. Not at all. Now, this issue of guilt is an important one to address in our context today. I just want to say one or two things very quickly about that. Uh, It has been described in a number of ways. For example, we have objective guilt. In other words, we're found guilty of a wrongdoing or a legal offence. We may not feel guilty, especially, but we are guilty. Uh, And so when the magistrate or the judge pronounces the verdict guilty, it doesn't matter how we feel about it. We are guilty in the eyes of the law. Secondly, there is subjective guilt where we actually do feel guilty about something. We took something that we were told not to. We know we've got a wrong relationship with somebody or we know that God knows what we're like inside and we feel guilty. That's subjective guilt. Let me say quickly, it is, of course, possible to feel guilty when you're not guilty. A great deal of the neurotic guilt of people seeking therapy and counseling derives from a false view of themselves and of others. And there are many people who are suffering with that. And then there is what I think Menninger, the psychologist, calls existential guilt, which means our true moral guilt. Whether we acknowledge it or not, whether we feel it or not, the consequence of being no longer in connection with our Creator. We've been, you see, banished from the garden, and we take refuge from the presence of God. So what a contradiction man has become. What a contradiction. This is the teaching of Genesis. Who is man? Man is created gloriously as the very pinnacle of God's creation. In the image of God he created them. Male and female he created them. But look at him now. Fallen in guilt and shame. Hiding from the one who made him. You see, once we were princes, now we're paupers. We were, and still are, the pinnacle of God's creation. Because the image of God and man, you see, has not been absolutely destroyed. Calvin says, there are still some relics or sparks of the image of God and man. And in a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, God is gloriously restoring that image. That's what's happening for everybody who's a Christian in the congregation this morning. God is reworking that image. He is bringing us again into uh, close spiritual fellowship with himself. But as we close today, I want to simply direct this very personally to everybody here. What about you today? God comes to you and asks, where are you? Where have you been hiding? He longs to meet with you, to have fellowship with you. So let me be direct. What are the sins and the concerns and the priorities and the passions and the pride that come between you and him? Will you give those things up today? Would you be prepared this morning to stop running and hiding from God? Come in confession and humility And receive his forgiveness through his son, Jesus Christ, who died, who waits with outstretched arms to receive us. Genesis takes us right back to the beginning. And for somebody here in Windsor Baptist Church building today, it could be a new beginning. A time when you find God and he finds you. And a relationship that has been broken for a long, long time, is at last mended, wonderfully restored.